If you want to find the uh, passage of Scripture, uh, while we're going to be looking at Luke 12, verse 10 this morning. Before we dive into that message, though, um, we had another uh, tragic crime this week in Florida with uh, another school shooter. And, um, of course, in the wake of all this, all the whole gun debate comes uh, to the head again. And um, I was uh, watching something this week um, of somebody addressed members of Congress uh, a number of years ago about uh, guns and so forth. And, and he made an interesting comment. He said, really, our, our, our concern is not to uh, eliminate shootings, ultimately. It's to eliminate violence. And, of course, if you scratch behind violence far enough, you go back to um, our fundamental understanding of how the world is, and that is we have a sin problem. And um, maybe, maybe gun legislation will change some things, but it won't change that thing. And so this morning, before we dive into our message, we're going to spend a little time praying for those who have lost loved ones this week, um, whose family members are in the hospitals and friends are in hospitals, and uh, pray that the, the Lord of glory would um, show his glory to them, those hurting, hurting people. And um, I, I can't imagine, you know, as I thought about this again, when I was going to school, you know, the only things that were uppermost in our minds was, you know, will we pass the physics test? And, you know, does that girl care about me? And now we think about parents and students that go to schools wondering whether or not they're going to come home. And it is a different world that we live in. And yet it's not a different kind of world. It is still a sinful world. And uh, we have a, a God in heaven who has been so concerned about the sin of this world that he gave a savior for it. And so it's, there's still um, a great message of hope that our God offers us, even in the midst of this kind of tragedy. So would you pray with me before we begin? Uh, Father, we pray for those... Um, living in and around Parkland, maybe whose children were killed this week, whose children were injured, whose friends were killed, friends injured, maybe grandparents living in other parts of the country that now have a hole in uh, their family tree. We pray that you would comfort and bring consolation to them through the work of the Spirit, through the work of others around them. May neighbors feel compelled to go over, maybe even to, to folks they don't know very well, and just say, I'm so sorry about your loss. Um, here's some cookies. Just want you to know we're thinking about you, we're praying about you. And we pray that in the midst of the horror, that a message of Christ might make its way to people who are suffering so badly and that they might find that there's a, a message of hope that can transcend um, a society in which life is made little of, in which violence is seen as a way to either um, take out revenge seen as a way to gain some notoriety. That even in a society like this, that there are rays of sunshine 
that find their way down through the canopy of horror to remind us that you are still on the throne. I I pray, Lord, just for a shaping and a molding of our hearts that we might be... um, Become people who are concerned about those who suffer so that when they strike our neighborhoods, when they strike our schools, when they strike our communities, there's an entire force of God's people who are ready to step up and make our faith count. So comfort, minister, bring hope to um, a despairing community this morning in Jesus' name. But I will never, ever be able to forgive you. I will never, ever be able to forgive you. Now, there are certain things that are certainly not forgivable, aren't there? Like people cheering for the Dallas Cowboys, for example. Or the Cleveland Cavaliers. Or having to wait for a table at uh, Olive Garden for two hours. I mean, that's just unforgivable. There are certain things that we go, yeah, that makes sense. I I can agree with that. And my guess is that some of you have had some things happen to you that you're like, I'm never going to get over that. We might still talk, but I am never, ever, ever going to forget what you did. And it might be that a friend has betrayed your secret Maybe your best friend sleeps with your wife. How does anybody get over that? How does anybody forgive that? You're in business and your business partner embezzles from the firm. Or your son curses at you. I I remember years ago a friend telling me that his uh, high school age son had called him an SOB. And I thought, oh my, wow. Uh, How do you get by that? And this morning, we're going to talk about um, the limits of forgiveness. Only in this case, we're going to talk about God. And you would think when we compare these trivial and serious violations that it's, I'm so glad that God's different. You know, we might uh, do something to somebody and they refuse to forgive us, but thank goodness God's not like that. And yet there is something in the Bible where God says, I will not forgive that. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Luke chapter 12, verse 10. There's only one verse here, and so we're not given a lot of context. So we'll look at Mark 3 as well. Luke 12, verse 10, Jesus says, Anyone who speaks against the Son of Man can be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Let me read that again. Anyone who speaks against Jesus, or the Son of Man, can be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit would guide our conversation this morning, give us understanding and insight of this difficult statement, and that we might know what it is that you say no to, and all the other things that you say yes to when it comes to forgiveness. I pray for those here who do not know Christ, that they would pay careful attention where you draw the line, and for us who know Christ, that we might be reassured this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Now, my study Bible says that this passage is one of the most enigmatic, debated, and misunderstood sayings of all of Jesus' ministry. What is it to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Now, to blaspheme is to do something verbally. It is a verbal sin to speak against. But that may not take us the whole way home in understanding what it is and then its implications. Let me take you again back to Mark chapter 3, starting at verse 22. Excuse me, this um, saying is in three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew and Mark give us a lot more context Matthew talks about Jesus casting out a demon. And that does seem to be the backdrop. Verse 22. But the teachers of religious law who had arrived from Jerusalem said, he, speaking of Jesus, he's possessed by Satan, the prince of demons. That's where he gets his power to cast out demons. Jesus called them over and responded with an illustration. How can Satan cast out Satan, he asked. A kingdom divided by civil war will collapse. Similarly, a family splintered by feuding will fall apart. And if Satan is divided and fights against himself, how can he stand? He would never survive. Let me illustrate this further. Who's powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man like Satan and plunder his goods? And he's talking about uh, himself and casting out demons. Only someone even stronger, someone who could tie him up, and then plunder his house. I tell you the truth, all sin and blasphemy can be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. This is his sin with eternal consequences. He told them this because they were saying he is possessed by an evil spirit. It's interesting. You can actually go on YouTube, and uh, if you just type in blasphemy of the Holy Spirit challenge, you can pull up, video after video after video of people going on there and saying, I deny the Holy Spirit. And they're all folks who say uh, they're atheists and they know about this passage. And so they're like, I'm so committed to my atheism that I'm going to say this uh, in front of thousands of people. And so there's kind of no going back for me. Is that what this is talking about. It's interesting, none of the Pharisees that Jesus was talking to were actually saying that. They weren't saying, I deny the Holy Spirit, but Jesus is saying, but you are actually denying the Holy Spirit. So what is he talking about? There's a couple of options here. One, some folks have thought anytime someone accuses somebody else of doing something that uh, they say is demonic, but is actually under the power of the Holy Spirit, that is what Jesus is talking about. Let me give you a for instance. In some uh, Christian circles, they do what is called slain of the spirit. Everybody know what that is? Where people under the um, uh, influence of a a teacher uh, puts his hand up or either against their head or away from it. And uh, they fall over backwards and some people go unconscious. Other people uh, lay there and and jerk um, with spasms on the floor, some sort of manifestation like that. Now, I, I don't believe that's of the Holy Spirit. I've, I've looked at all the scriptures that are given to support that. I don't believe that's of the Spirit. 
I, I also don't, in most cases, think that it's demonic, although I have seen some videos that make me wonder about that. I think that it possibly could be in some instances. Now, let's just say for argument that that is a work of the Holy Spirit. Does that mean that I've committed the unpardonable sin when I would uh, say that's either not of the Holy Spirit or say perhaps in some cases it's actually demonic? Uh, I don't think so, and let me give you a couple of reasons why that I believe that is. First of all, the context of this passage is not um, uh, saying that the Holy Spirit or saying that demons are doing uh, anything that's supposedly credited to the Holy Spirit, but rather that Jesus is being accused of being a demoniac himself when he casts out a demon. In other words, a demon is essentially casting out a demon. And Jesus is, he goes to great lengths to explain that. That doesn't even make any sense. That's illogical. Why would Satan try to undermine his work? Why would Satan try to undermine his own efforts, his own kingdom? And so really, Jesus is limiting it here to a, you saying that I who come from God, I am demonized, doing a work to cast out a demon. The other reason I don't think that that's a legitimate explanation of this, uh, we're Mark, so let me take you to Mark 13. Jesus was telling his disciples that in the days ahead, false messiahs are going to show up. Now we're going to start reading in verse 21. Therefore, if anyone tells you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. And he tells them, watch out. I have warned you about this ahead of time. Here's the essence of what he is saying. In the future, false prophets, uh, false teachers, people who are doing Satan's bidding, are going to perform false signs and wonders. Don't get snookered by that. Don't be taken in. The implication is, you might be. Some Christians might be taken in by this. Paul talks about, talks about this in 1 Thessalonians. That there's a time coming when there's going to be false signs and wonders, and it may be that some Christians get taken in by them. If that's the case, that would mean that these Christians are blaspheming the Holy Spirit and committing a sin that cannot, will not be forgiven. And I think Jesus has something else entirely in mind here. Most Bible teachers have come to the same conclusion that there is a, there, Jesus is saying there is a hardness being manifested in the hearts of the Pharisees here that indicates their hearts are so hard that they, they will not acknowledge, indeed they do not want to acknowledge that God is at work. And what Jesus is actually saying is you have gone so far from God that you cannot be, this is not an issue that God refuses to forgive you. It is rather an issue that you are so far gone, you do not want to be forgiven. And so to some degree, these folks on the YouTube videos are manifesting what could be, God only knows their heart, but what could be this manifestation of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. In other words, that they're so far, in, uh, so deeply in rebellion against God that the convicting work of the Holy Spirit in their lives to draw them to Jesus is not going to happen. 
It's not going to happen. Now, that's a scary thing. Scary thing that someone could get so far down the line now that not that God won't forgive them, but they have no desire ever to be forgiven. In other words, it, it could become, uh, you could become so rebellious that you reach a point where, say you're in your deathbed, and somebody comes to you and shares the gospel, and you're like, no, I, I'm not interested. I, I was reading recently about a, a man who was on his deathbed, and a pastor who my, uh, was also a radio preacher I used to listen to years ago went to him as he was dying, and, he, and I'll just call him Jim. He said, Jim, I, we've talked many, many times about the gospel. And uh, the man said, I, I know we have. He said, you know I believe in God. I, I, can't, I can't look at the world and not believe in God. And this pastor said, but what about Jesus? Are you ready today to turn to Christ? I, you, you know as well as I do, you only have a limited amount of time left. And he goes, no. He said, I am not going to put my trust in your Christ. He said, I, I believe that there is this God, but he's going to judge me uh, based on what I've done. I've been a pretty good guy, and uh, I, I'm okay to stand in front of him and, with just what I've done. And he died like that. And one of the things that we have to understand, the Pharisees look like pretty bad guys in the New Testament. You look at somebody like that on his deathbed, and he's been a pretty good guy all through his life, and we think, that's somebody whom God should be responsive to. He's not a really hard person. He hasn't spoken out against Christ. He hasn't said that Christ has a demon. Shouldn't God forgive him? The issue is not how nice of a guy he is. The issue is how crystallized the hardness of his heart has become. And, and, and this, is, this is a warning. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you know, sometimes people put off coming to Christ simply because, well, I'm not ready to go there yet. I, I want to have some fun in life. I'm not ready to put my life into someone else's hands and say, I'll live for you. This is talking about saying no often enough, over and over and over, until reaching this dead end where your heart has changed. It's a heart of stone. And God will no longer forgive because you no longer desire it. And if you're not a Christian, let me warn you, don't wait so long that this becomes true of your heart. Now, for you who are Christians, I've had some interesting conversations over the years in my ministry, in my office, where people come, they know the Lord, but they're fearful that they have somehow committed this sin. And as uh, Bishop J.C. Ryle in uh, England used to say, if you are fearful that you've committed this sin, you probably have it. Let me take you back to 
Ezekiel chapter 36, where it describes what God does when he saves someone. Ezekiel 36, verse 26. And I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. The very fact that if you have this fear that you might have at one time in your life committed this sin, the very fact that you have that fear means you haven't committed that sin because we're talking about people who are so far away from God, so resistant to him, they don't want to be forgiven. This is what God says he refuses to forgive. Just to sum it up, someone who resists the convicting power of the spirit over and over and over and over and over again to come to a point where they no longer feel the conviction because God has withdrawn that conviction. They no longer have that desire. So much, listen, if, if you're a Christian, so much of what has happened to you has happened because God initiated it. The Bible tells us that God convicts us of our sin by the Holy Spirit. That's a B.C., before Christian thing, John chapter 16. God comes, the reason you have become a Christian is because God has been convicting you of sin. The reason you came to a point where you were willing to and could respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ is because God, through the Holy Spirit, has regenerated you. He's taken a dead man, a dead woman, a dead boy, a dead girl, and brought that deadness to life. So you could respond to the gospel. So much of that is happening before you or I ever became a Christian. And it's happened to unbelievers who say no, 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 no. Until there's no opportunity for a yes anymore. Now that's the bad news. Here's the good news. We want to talk about what God promises to forgive because this is what you as a Christian need to hear if you are concerned about God not forgiving you. 1 John chapter 1 verse 9. I, I love this passage. 1 John chapter 1 verse 9. <clears throat> but if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive our uh, forgive us our sins. And to cleanse us from all wickedness. Now, some people look at this passage and say, oh, this means, uh, this is talking about the massive forgiveness that God does when we come to faith in Christ. Other people look at this verse and say, oh, this is speaking about our ongoing forgiveness needs. In other words, we come to Christ, and even though we're forgiven of our sins at that point in terms of the power and the consequence, nonetheless, we have sins that we will continue to commit commit and we need to be asking God to forgive us. And I would say that's both of those things are true. When we ask God's forgiveness at conversion, he washes our lives pure, white as snow, all the sins gone. And yet we sin. And so we need to go back. How many times did you need to go back this week and ask God for forgiveness of sin? This is speaking about both that as a general rule, God will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all our wickedness when we confess our sins to him. Now, if I were to ask you, if you're a Christian, I were to ask you to bow your head and think 
about the worst thing that you've ever done. To your mind, it's the worst thing you've ever done. I wonder how many of you think, I don't really know if God's forgiven me of that or is willing to forgive me. I've had things already that I've tried to not let them come to my mind. This is the, these are the tricks that we play on ourselves. Tried not to let them come to my mind because thinking if I think about them, God will know about them. And now he won't, and you know, he might not forgive me if it's so awful. You ever do anything like that? It's like, if God found out about this, as if he doesn't already know, if God found out about this, he wouldn't forgive it. Here's a news, news flash. He already knows about it. He knows all about you, even the things you've forgotten about you. He knows all about you. And in Christ, he has still forgiven you. So the unpardonable sin is not all the times you slept with your girlfriend. It's not the struggles that you have with same-sex attraction or even the, the um, sexual stuff you did with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. It's not the time that you cursed out your mom or dad. It's, it's not the horrible things that you think about that if God only knew, he wouldn't forgive. God already knows. And in Christ has already forgiven. Listen. The work that Jesus did on the cross was, was not just a, a, it was not just a beginning. It was a beginning and a finishing. It was not just a, a, a small amount of sin that he could take care of. It was all of it. It was, it was all of it. God has forgiven murderers. He has forgiven rapists. He has forgiven people that do child pornography. It's only us who have limits on sin, whether it's the sins we've committed or as we look at other people's sins, like a Nicholas Cruz in Parkland, Florida, and we say, God won't forgive that, or even God shouldn't forgive that. God's forgiveness is wide, His mercy wide, His grace glorious. Now, we can't leave the topic of forgiveness without touching on, however, the issue of our forgiveness of other people. Did did you think this week when the news came in about this young man killing all these kids, did you think, man, if I could just get my hands on him, just have about an hour with him? A couple of weeks ago, there was another Catholic priest indicted in Delaware he was indicted for child rape. He was with a young lady who was under the age of 16, so that qualifies as child rape. 76-year-old priest, and this is his response, uh, it, 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 it was an accident. It was an accident. It was a misunderstanding. And when I, when I hear that kind of stuff, you know, when somebody owns up to what they've done, I my um, mercy tends to kick in much better than when they deny it or they, you know, spin it in some way. And I'm like, oh, just, just give me 10 minutes with that guy. God has a whole different take on that. And the Bible even goes so far as to say that because of how God has forgiven us. 
we should remember that when we look at other people and the bad things they do. Let me take you in closing Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. Colossians 3, verse 13. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. We all still sin. We all still will sin. And God in Christ will continue to forgive you. Now that might sound like I'm opening the door and saying, just go ahead and sin with impunity. Should we sin more that grace should abound more? Paul asked the question in Romans 6.1. The answer to that is no. But I also agree with Chuck Colson who used to say, unless we preach grace dangerously, meaning that some people might misunderstand us to say, we're giving you a permission to sin. Unless we preach grace to that extent, we're not preaching biblical grace. How do we know that? Because Paul came under that charge. He was being accused of saying, go ahead and sin, doesn't matter. We don't we choose not to sin because of what Christ has done for us. We choose to glorify God because of what Christ has done for us. But the bottom line is that God in his grace does and will forgive all sins except the one committed by the person who has said no, 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 no so often that his or her heart is hardened and no longer desires to be forgiven. That is a sin that God will not forgive. Part because it's a sin that's never, for which forgiveness is never sought. And so you Christian, don't worry. You haven't committed it. You unbeliever, be very careful. In fact, I would encourage you to consider that maybe today is the day that God wants you to say yes to Christ. You say, well, how do I do that? There's a fundamental problem that you have with God. That's the reason you need Christ, and that is that you're a sinner. You make mistakes. You do things you shouldn't do. You fail to do things you should do. Sin. And you can't become good enough to solve that problem. You can't stop being bad enough to solve that problem. Jesus went and died on the cross. A man who lived a perfect human life died so that you could be forgiven. And so your response is to simply say or to think God reads minds, some way acknowledge that you're a sinner, and turning from your sin doesn't mean you're going to be perfect from now on. It just means you're going to change your mind about once loving sin, now running from sin. Turn from your sin and trust Jesus Christ to forgive you of all of your sins. There's no magic way to say that. There's no magic way to think that. And the Bible promises 
if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us for our sins and cleanse us from all wickedness. And I don't know about you, but, but that fits my definition of good news. And maybe today is the day for you to do that. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for forgiveness that is so sweeping that even murderers can be forgiven, rapists can be forgiven, thieves can be forgiven, kidnappers can be forgiven, terrorists can be forgiven. In fact, we have evidence throughout history of all those kinds of people being forgiven. And some of us are those kinds of people. And the rest of us, we're all self-righteous. And even self-righteous people can be forgiven. Grateful for that. I pray for any person that's here this morning, doesn't know Christ, that they would not continue to resist, 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 resist. Your pull on their lives to get right with you. And I pray for every believer, especially the sensitive ones who have struggled with, did I, could I have done this horrid deed that would put me outside of God's grace that you might reassure them? No, they haven't. And the Lord is even as we have reflected on your great forgiveness of us, that we might live lives of forgiveness. I know it's a lot easier to talk about that in the abstract than it is to actually forgive a husband, forgive a wife, to actually forgive a friend, to forgive a, a, a child or to forgive a parent or to give, forgive a criminal. And yet the magnitude of what you have forgiven us for is so vast. How could we not forgive others for their sins against us? May we live forgiven people who forgive others. In Jesus' name, amen.